ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. I always had a very strong maternal drive, always. That was never a question in my mind. There was a lot of guilt wrapped up in in that idea of me thinking, am I being selfish and I'm putting my desire to be a mother above the well-being of a potential child. We've got this idea that straight couples are somehow the correct, deified, perfect way to bring a baby into the world. I suddenly had this feeling of, I don't need anybody else to fulfil what I'd always hoped for. I guess when I started to make the calls and the inquiries and speak to the specialists, there was that excitement and that momentum, you know, of, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to quite possibly have a child by the end of this process. From before little girls can talk, we're fed by culture, this Disney-like fantasy that we'll meet a hero and we'll be mothers. (laughs) It's the one-line life plan. And to help us prepare, we're given toys like prams and dolls that can poo. Which I've got to say, I kind of dig. I reckon they're rad. And all of that accumulates in our brains as we get older. The idea that we'll meet someone, we'll fall in love, we'll have a baby with them. And I think as little girls, we're fed this sort of romantic narrative that our lives will unfold in an inevitable direction. I really had to grieve this romantic narrative, which is very appealing. So what about when your life doesn't follow the script? We all make decisions and choices for various reasons. Mine wasn't romantic or born out of fairy tale. It was, if I don't do this, I think my life is going to start trending in the opposite direction. What happens when you still really yearn for those babies? but you don't have a partner who's also keen to be a parent. I realised how much of my life I had been waiting for a man to tell me what I could and couldn't do in terms of having a baby. I'm Yumi Steins. Ladies, we need to talk about being a solo mum by choice. listening to this podcast, so I'm going to assume that you understand that to create a brand new human baby, you need things like a functional egg, sperm that can swim, and a uterus in which to grow said baby. It's baby making 101. And when any of those body parts aren't working quite right, the term infertility is used. Well, I want to introduce you to a slightly stinging bit of jargon that's different. It's called social infertility. It's basically when your biography, rather than your biology, stops you from procreating. And biography might mean that you're busy building a fabulous career for yourself or bouncing from undergrad to grad to master's and you realise, shit, I haven't really thought about kids. Or maybe you're perpetually single. Maybe you're a lesbian and you don't actually have the sperm bit built into your relationship. Or maybe you've been hooked up in a long-term hetero relationship for years and your guy is still not ready to commit to kids. The term social infertility covers all those things and more. It's where your bits are working, but you can't, for whatever reason, make a baby. This episode is about women who have taken control of the narrative and conquered the idea of social infertility by choosing to do motherhood solo. 
I was married. Short, brief, disastrous marriage. This is Jess. She was married at 36, divorced at 37. I'd always wanted to be a mother. It was just having a family is, is, has always been my dream. So that was a bit of a non-negotiable. Jess says she had a cracker wedding but a shit marriage. And when it was all falling apart, Jess wasn't mourning the end of the relationship as much as grieving the fact that at this stage of her life, being a mum just might not happen. Not wanting to waste precious time, Jess cannonballed straight back into dating. As we all know at that age, the dating pool kind of has floating band-aids and clumps of hair and all sorts (laughs) of odd things in it that uh, aren't entirely ideal. And I didn't have any luck. Jess was frustrated with the dating scene and didn't want to procreate with the sentient scum scooped out of the public swimming pool. Whenever I was dating, you hate to be thinking like you're looking for some baby daddy, but in the back of your mind, you're trying not to come across as, you know, a woman in my late 30s with a pair of screaming ovaries. So Jess started to entertain the idea of becoming a mother on her own. It was really liberating to think, I can do this. This is, this is up to me. The decision to become a solo mum by choice wasn't one that you arrived at quickly. What are some of the things that you were processing in your mind? I'm a teacher and I was living in Sydney. So being a solo mum in Sydney on a teacher's salary just wasn't something that I could see happening. Years ago, I bought a house out in regional New South Wales and I was trying to work out how I could use my long service leave, my maternity leave, how, whether I could afford my mortgage and all of that sort of stuff. I had to kind of get that stuff straight in my head, the practicalities. So what other things go through your head? Because when you've always wanted to be a mother and you've always wanted a family, you sort of picture certain things that go along with it. For instance, (laughs) a partner is is often part of the package. It's a really funny thing. I, I had two very distinct and very different feelings happening. The moment I made the decision that, yes, I was going for it, it was absolutely one of the most liberating feelings of my life because I suddenly... Had this feeling of, I don't need anybody else to fulfill what I'd always hoped for. And then the next feeling that happened was once everything was going into motion, I'd had all my appointments and I now was looking for a donor. And that feeling was one that was just filled with this, it took me by surprise, a really sort of rank feeling of shame. And I was shopping online like it was Tinder. I just felt but I put my head down my bum up and I, I, I got on with it and just I picked it there was a lot of guilt wrapped up in in that idea of me thinking am I being selfish and I'm putting my desire to be a mother above the well-being of a potential child that really was something that I grappled with While Jess was wrestling with the guilt and shame but also excitement at the idea of becoming a mum on her own COVID hit and Spam shortage. Thanks, Dr Norman. No joke. Because of the pandemic, Australian men were literally withholding their wank as they couldn't get to a clinic. Also, side note here, there is just a lot less local sperm in general in Australia. Unlike many overseas countries, Aussie men don't get paid to donate. So with the help of her clinic, Jess cast her sperm net further afield. The donor sperm came from California and with the Aussie dollar crashing, it meant that the cost went up exponentially. So I just got on with it. So you talked a bit about the shame of selecting a sperm donor um, for various reasons. Can you also tell us about what characteristics you were looking for in that sperm donor? I guess that you were hoping that your child would 
inherit? Mental and physical health. That was crucial to me. My father suffered from mental health issues, so I just didn't want to tap into a gene pool that had that on the other side as well. I thought it'd be nice for that child to look like the one parent that they have. So I was looking for people with similar hair colouring, similar skin colouring to me, in the hope that that kid would look like it's one parent. While attending appointments, clinics and tests, Jess was surprised by a seemingly small detail that made her very aware that she really was doing this on her own. One of the things for a listener that just to be braced for the fact that when you walk into those places, you fill out forms and there are two columns and you only fill out the left-hand one. And I found that hard. You conceived via IVF. How did you find that process? Oh, it's grim. I mean, it's not a lot of fun, particularly if you're doing parts of it in lockdown. The key for me was just keeping my eye on the prize. The first round failed. Jess remained pragmatic and jumped back on the horse for a second rodeo. And yay, bullseye! Which is a mixed metaphor, but I think you get it. Jess was super excited, but then, as it always is with parenthood, reality hit. Jess had one of those really tough pregnancies riddled with sickness, fainting and complications. Jess, we're going to hit pause on your story and come back to you a bit later in the episode. Because right now, it's time to meet Nina. I always had a very strong maternal drive, always. That was never a question in my mind. Nina was in various relationships through her 20s, none of which were quite right for starting a family. I also always knew that it would be difficult for me, just given the fact that I, I'm gay, I, I have an Islamic background. She felt the weight of cultural expectations around her sexuality and the assumptions that there's only one proper way to have a family, and that's the traditional way. So Nina distanced herself from her mum and dad. It was a, a form of self-preservation. You know, it, it was either I, I succumb to those pressures or I just start actually living my life. I got to a point, I guess, in my probably early 30s, after realising that I was never going to be able to have children in a way that was acceptable to my parents. I made a deal with the devil. By the devil, Nina means herself. I said, Nina's, look, if you are not in a committed relationship by the age of 35, um, we're doing this. So after making the decision one day on her therapist's couch, it was all systems go on Project Baby. I'm not the type to sit there and mull about things for for the next 12 months and plan them. It was basically the next day I was calling up the fertility clinic and, and, and asking questions around how do I do this. What was the process like? Exciting, daunting, brutally lonely. I guess when I started to make the calls and the inquiries and speak to the specialists, there was that excitement and that momentum. You know, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to quite possibly have a child by the end of this process. I would go in and, and do a test or I'd, I'd have an appointment with a fertility specialist and then I would come home to myself at the end of the day and I'd be in my bed and it would just be this almost like a come down of what am I doing? Is it the right thing? I can tell you from experience that this is a time in many women's lives where they turn to their own mums for advice and support about conceiving, about pregnancy and about birth. Nina started to feel the sting of family estrangement deeply. I wanted to call up my mum and say, hey, mum, you know, this is what happened at today's appointment. But the relationship was fractured and Nina wasn't sure whether the call would be welcome. 
It was like deciding to have a child by myself was like coming out all over again and reliving that trauma. When it came to choosing her donor sperm, Nina was fastidious. She got it on with the Microsoft software. I always joke and say that my daughter started her journey in this world on an Excel spreadsheet. So you'd be presented with a a spreadsheet, literally, just a one-liner for each of the donors. Eye colour, heritage, age of the donor, hair colour, so on. It's a basic, basic stats. And then you would pick your top three. And tell me about your criteria. Like what was sort of top of your list of must-haves? There was none. So Must have a head. Must have a head, must have (laughs) eyes. So looking at any hereditary or genetic diseases. And the level of detail that they go to, Yumi, in those profiles is you know the age of the grandfather when their grandfather started balding. Hmm, convenient. You know whether the ears, uh, earlobes are attached or detached. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Whether they've had braces, you know, if they've ever had acne, um, how tall they are. But then you look at their academic history. Is, is next. And then they're lovely enough to write you an essay about why you should pick them as... <laughs> After diligently studying the personal dissertations of sperm donors, Nina got pregnant via intrauterine insemination or IUI, aka the turkey-based method. It's really not very sexy at all. It's a point and shoot, basically. So the sperm gets loaded into a catheter and it is, it is like having heterosexual sex in a clinic without the sexy part. So it's essentially just injecting the sperm directly into, you know, your cervix and then hoping for the best. Nina's clinic suggested three tries of IUI before embarking on the more invasive IVF. And luckily, Nina fell pregnant on try number three. Of course, she was thrilled, but the reality of going it alone suddenly hit. The loneliest part was the moment that I learnt that I was pregnant. And there were many moments like that, you know, from embarking on the journey to finding out I was pregnant and the actual, you know, having the child, Mm. you know, feeling your first contractions and not being able to grab your partner and go, it's happening, babe. (laughs) It's happening, it's on. And what was the birth like? Almost like I went through a grieving process through my pregnancy, losing a sense of myself, embarking on this new journey with, with no idea of what I was doing. And then this kid comes out and it's like, wow, you're mine. I mean, it, was, it, wasn't all, it wasn't all for nothing. You're mine. And that I'll never forget that moment. Being estranged from her family, Nina didn't have a village around her. And those early days of mothering were brutal. Nina realised that no amount of research, planning or colour-coded spreadsheets could shield her from postnatal depression. I did not cope. Having a child broke me. And I wasn't willing to admit that I was breaking. I didn't want people to look at me and go, she, she didn't make the right decision. She didn't think this out, you know. She didn't cross her T's and dot her I's. Wanted to keep up this front that everything was okay and that I could manage on my own, but actually I wasn't. It got to the point where I had a massive meltdown and I had to reach out to mum and she was incredible. She could see that I was not coping. Nina's postnatal depression was a sort of catalyst for repairing the rift between her and her mother. Nina's daughter is now six years old, and while Nina and her folks are still rebuilding their relationship, Nina is delighted that her daughter has a bond with her grandparents. I did it. Like, I'm here. 
my daughter's thriving, we're okay. And honestly, to this day, she's like, Mum, I love you, can you just cuddle me? And ending, no matter how difficult the day was, honestly, no matter how long, no matter how tired I am, that, that one brief moment in time is just my reset. And I'm like, I love you, kid. You know, you are just magic. Karen Hammerberg, and I'm Senior Research Fellow at the Global and Women's Health at Monash University. What Dr. Karen really means is that she's a pioneer of IVF, like literally. She was part of the legendary team that created the first IVF baby in the world ever back in Sweden in the early 80s. She also works for VARTA, the independent regulatory body for IVF in Victoria. And here at Ladies We Need to Talk, we love Karen because... Well, she tells it like it is. The presence of two parents or of a male parent is really not essential for children to to flourish. And what's actually much more, more important is the quality of the relationships within the family. In terms of getting pregnant without a partner... Where is a good place to start? Think it through logistically, uh, how, how, how to manage and how to be that sole responsible person and, and setting up a support network and making sure that there are other people around who can give a hand and who can step in and, and, and also to be really active people in the, in the child's life as they grow up. Okay, one, make a budget. Mm -hmm. Two, check your maternity leave entitlements. Got it. Three, do your sums. But really do them. Like you're not Miss Piggy blindly bashing away at a typewriter here. Be psychotic about it. Four, build your village. Five, and a very big consideration. Where are you going to get the sperm from? Where are you going to get the sperm from? Where am I going to get the sperm from? Google single mum friendly fertility clinics. And I would always recommend the formal pathway, only because I do think it is so much safer. And also it means that the child will, in the end, have the right to know who the biological father is. Because in Australia, you can't be an anonymous donor. What is the difference between informal sperm donation and going through a clinic? Formal donation means that you go to an IVF clinic, you obviously have to pay some money, but the donor sperm that you can access is from people who have made a deliberate decision to be a sperm donor and who have agreed to be known to the child when the child grows up. The person has also gone through quite a bit of screening in terms of their mental and physical health and their their family history and any kind of inheritable diseases. Informal donation is basically avoiding a clinic, which makes things cheaper but much riskier in both a health and a legal sense. Karen does not recommend. If you want to use a friend's sperm, you don't have to go about it informally. They can head to your clinic of choice and go through all the health screenings and get eyes on all the legal stuff to agree, sign and hopefully protect everyone down the track. Karen says that informal donation also includes Facebook groups where men offer their sperm to total strangers. It's no surprise that this is a huge red flag. I have heard of uh, people who offer their uh, sperm saying that they will only do it naturally, meaning that they want to have sex. So that that would be one thing I would be very cautious about, uh, of course. 
So there can be creep risks to informal methods and also legal risks. I have heard of donors who, after some time, realised that they really wanted to have contact with the child and the woman who had received the sperm didn't want to have a father figure for this child. So there can be disagreements and they can be difficult to negotiate. The ideas around social infertility and deciding to become a solo mum are often full of judgement and they're conversations blaming women about the choices we've made throughout our lives. Like, how dare we choose to be gay? Or how dare we choose to not be able to get a boyfriend? Or how dare we concentrate on our careers for a little too long? So let's park all that and ask this question. What is the man's role in all of this? Somehow... A lot of the, the, the kind of men's uh, inability to feel ready, I think, is, is one of the reasons why more and more women go down this path because there, there are a lot of relationships that have potential to be going forward, but the guy decides that he's not ready. And sometimes when it takes too long, the kind of opportunities evaporate for the woman. So waiting for the right person can be something that is just not possible if, if you have that burning desire to become a mother. Uh, some women prefer to take it in their own hands and, and actually go ahead and do it on their own. So if you could advise men about their role in this situation, what would you tell them? I would tell them that there's never... Uh, the, the <laughs> I think I would tell them that... Let me just rephrase all that. <laughs> I want to just I'm, kick I'm, up the arse, basically. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that. I think you're allowed, right? It's like, step up. Well, exactly. And I, I, that's actually how I usually phrase this. I, I want men to step up and I want men to be really actively involved in, in these reproductive decision makings because the research actually shows that men want children just as much as women do. But they have trouble thinking that now is the right time. And the, the fear of commitment, I think, sometimes stands in the way. I was with a man who I loved very, very much, and he loved me, and we had a lovely relationship, and everything was going well. Solo mum by choice, Alexandra Collier, was living in New York in her 30s and in love. But he wasn't ready to have a baby yet. And so I did need his permission. I couldn't just do, as my doctor suggested, pretend that... You know, I was on the pill, in inverted commas. Did your doctor really suggest that? She really did suggest so that. Cool. It was quite jaw-dropping. <laughs> <laughs> we talked for about a year before the final ultimatum moment. We went to therapy. You know, this was a, you know, this guy was lovely. He was emotionally mature and responsible. He suggested we go to therapy, which you know, most men wouldn't necessarily do. There were so many reasons to stay. And, you know, as any woman in their mid-30s knows, when you've found a good man, you don't, you don't leave them. <laughs> you, know, you, do, you never leave a good man. But Alexandra wanted, no, 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 not wanted. She needed a baby. And as much as I personally cringe at the cliche of the baby horny woman approaching 40, this was Alex's real experience. There's sort of this desperate, rabid energy around, you know, your mid-30s when you want to have a baby. You're like, I wouldn't, I'm not going to leave this relationship because it's, you know, going to lead to my family that I want. And I started to feel really down and I couldn't figure out why. And then I realised it's because I know I have to leave this relationship. This person is actually an obstacle to what I want. The person that I love is stopping me from making a family. And 
of course, that was completely heartbreaking and devastating. And it's not something I regret, though. It was the choice that I had to make, and it was the right choice. Alexandra now has a preschool-aged son, and she's written a memoir about her solo mum adventures called Inconceivable. It's a roller coaster. Being a parent on one's own is probably not that different to being a parent in a couple in that, you know, every day there's extreme highs, extreme lows. Do you ever get lonely? There are moments of compare and despair where you go to the playground on a Sunday morning. Sunday morning seems to be the key time that all the dads take the kids to the playground and you see all the dads at the playground letting the mums have a sleep in and there is this sense of like, oh, God, I wish I could have that. But that's not loneliness. That's like wanting something that you don't have. Alexandra, you're a storyteller and author. What's the story of your son's dad that you're going to explain to him? I've been telling him even before he could really talk that, you know, mummy wanted to have a baby, so she went to the doctor and the doctor gave her a seed from a nice man. And you sort of evolve the language as they get older and they can understand more the biological processes. But the framing of it is crucial in that you talk about it being a process of love. You know, it's not just a sterile thing that you did. It's something that was driven by a desire to love and have your child. Do you ever think about the future and wonder if your donor will want to meet your son and be part of his life? I don't get the sense from him that he's trying to swoop in. We haven't (laughs) met. There's been a few letters. That's been about it. And if anything, it's the opposite. I get the sense that he is at a bit of a remove because he's a donor and he doesn't expect to have any sort of parentage claims of this child. We never end up where we think we're going to be. We have this sort of fantasy, idealised notion of what our life is going to look like. And so I hope the book lets people take hold of their own future without waiting for someone's permission or approval or sperm. Please, sir, can I have some sperm? (laughs) Nina, the solo mum who overcame her postnatal depression, hasn't yet reached out to the donor, but did go searching for other families that used the same donor. I put a call out on Facebook and this gorgeous couple um, from another state reached out. So we started chatting. Um, I slid into their DMs (laughs) and we exchanged some photos and, oh, my goodness. I started crying. Like, there were no words. To see that my daughter had a sibling, or they call them diblings, Mm. donor siblings, that I didn't have to look too hard for and that had a resemblance to her. Do you know when you have these moments where you're not expecting it and something is so beautiful and joyful that you, it's just visceral. That's that's what happened and my body just erupted in goosebumps. Finally, I know you've been waiting to hear about Jess, the Sydney-based teacher who moved to the country so that she could afford to be a solo mum. So at seven weeks pregnant, Jess took her bestie along for a routine scan. The woman doing the scan was taking forever <laughs> to get around to saying, and I, because I'd had a failed one before, I thought, okay, well, obviously this one hasn't worked. Jess assumed the worst. And then there's a grey blob on the screen. I said, is that it? You know, she was looking for the heartbeat and mm. she said, yep, that one's it. And here's the second one. Congratulations, <gasps> you're having twins. Yep, Jess was about to be a solo mum with not one new baby, but two. And I just sort of squealed and said, I'm having twins. And then we just kind of, it was a bit of sort of laughing and tears and oh, I was over the moon, <laughs> absolutely over the moon. Everyone else was, I think, more freaked out about it than I was, <laughs> knowing 
I'd have my hands full, but I knew I would and I knew it'd be hard, but it's the best kind of hard you could ever have. Jess, what was it like taking two babies home from the hospital? (laughs) Well, when they were born, um, I was very lucky that I got to 36 weeks and they were... 2.1 2.1 kilos each, which sounds little, but for twins and a woman of my age, and I had there were a few complications in the pregnancy, that meant that they were pretty good. They did have two and a half weeks in the special care unit at the hospital. Having twins as a solo mum is a superhuman feat, and Jess acknowledges that she couldn't have done it without the constant support of her family. I have an extraordinary mother. I'm unbelievably lucky. She was with me from a couple of days before the girls were born. And I was with her for six months. Mm. And basically she was packing up my flat in Sydney whilst I was in hospital with the girls. No, you can't have what your sister wants. You can have the duck. We'll swap in a little while, okay? No, not the cream, because I know what you'll do with that. You'll squeeze everywhere. We don't need... Please, would you like me to find that tummy of yours? (gasps) The girls are now nearly three years old, and while life fluctuates between double gastro and bliss, Jess is pretty stoked. Right now, they're really engaging with each other. They'll sit and hold hands and look at each other and peekaboo each other behind curtains. Oh, delicious little moments. Those ones that just make your heart sing, fill your bucket up. I wouldn't swap it for anything. Like I, I just can't believe how lucky I am. If this helps some women make their decision, great, whatever that decision is, whether it's a yes or a no, because if you're thinking yes, get on with it. Don't delay. Just get on with it. Hear that? If you're contemplating going it alone for a baby, just do it. Don't wait for some guy in your life to give you permission. You're the boss of your life. And you know what else I learned from talking to these women for this episode? The thing we all crave is connection. Jess has an amazing mum. They share that connection. Nina reconciled with her religious mum, even though she's gay and chose to go on this wild ride by herself. And she is goosebumps level thrilled to find and connect with her daughters, Diblings and their parents. Jess, our country teacher, had her best friend there in the clinic with her for that incredible moment when she found out she was having twins. And Alex, who has a gorgeous son, is back and dating again. It's connection and it's the village. The village that we need to raise children, that can be yours whether you have kids at all. I think we all try and do the best for our children, no matter what our relationship status is. And I think that solo parents by choice go into making children with such a level of thoughtful, deliberate, conscientious hope and love and longing. And those children are really wanted. And isn't that what we ultimately want for our children? We want them to be loved and wanted. This podcast was produced on the lands of the Gundungurra and Gadigal peoples. Ladies We Need to Talk is mixed by Anne-Marie de Betancourt. It's produced by Hannah Achelis. Supervising producer is Alex Lolbach. And our executive producer is Kyla Slavin. This series was created by Claudine Ryan. Do 
you ever have moments looking after your kids when you think, what the heck am I doing? I've absolutely no idea what I'm supposed to do right now. I just need some help. Help me, Maggie. So where do you get the answers to big parenting questions and challenges? Right here with me, Maggie Dent, on Parental As Anything, the podcast. It's where you'll find practical solutions and tips on all the big issues, like what to do if your child is vaping. There is a vape amongst all of my child's bedding. Why is there a vape in my daughter's room? How to get your kids ready for big, big school. Really separating the idea of this is new and different versus this is hard and scary. And how to parent when you're feeling just like you really can't do it anymore. You're still in love with your child, but it's the emotional distancing from their children. Parental as anything with me, Maggie Dent. You'll find it on the ABC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts.